Chapter 5 Fiora swam until she reached the gardens on the outskirts of the city. She hadn't found a shipwreck to explore yet, but she needed a moment to catch her breath before she continued. She slowed her pace and circled over the gardens. Mermaid gardens weren't anything like the ones humans made with plants lined into neat rows in the ground. They were more like enormous mosaics. Merfolk arranged beautiful shells and things that fell into the sea into intricate patterns on the ocean floor. Most gardens centered around a theme, and every mermaid had a different style of arranging the items. Fiora drifted over a garden filled with mirrors arranged in a spiral pattern similar to the inside of a shell. The glass glistened like gems in the shifting underwater sunlight and reflected hundreds of versions of her as she swam. She studied the reflections. From the outside, her mixed heritage wasn't obvious. She was a little smaller than the other mermaids. Her fins didn't spread quite as wide. But she looked like she belonged. The water brushed her brilliant red hair over her shoulders, and Fiora sighed. The mermaid in the mirrors looked beautiful and serene and whole. But the reflections were a lie. She turned away from the mirrors and continued her swim. The next garden was one she remembered well from her childhood, and Fiora smiled when she saw it. This garden was filled with statues that had fallen from ships. Fiora had visited it every summer when she was a young mermaid, floating around the stone carvings and pretending they were her human family. The merfolk had added new statues in her absence, and the garden seemed to have escaped the kraken attacks mostly unscathed. A few statues had fallen to their sides, and some of them were covered in sand, but none were broken. Fiora swam down to the garden. There was one statue in particular that she wanted to visit. What are you doing here, Fiora? Fiora twisted around and saw Leander. He swam towards the garden carrying a statue of an older man with long, flowing hair. The craftsmanship was incredible. The artist had captured each strand of hair in the stone, and it seemed to move as Leander pulled it through the water. This statue was made more recently than the others. None of the edges had eroded, and the man's clothes didn't look old-fashioned. It must have fallen overboard during the recent attacks. He would make a fine addition to the garden. I asked you a question, Leander said, interrupting Fiora's musings. I'm practicing for the ceremony tonight. Fiora's voice was defensive, and currents stirred around her when she spoke, lifting her hair towards the surface. She pulled her hair down to cover her body and reminded herself again that none of the merfolk cared that she was naked. Practicing? Here? Why aren't you singing with Zoe? Leander hummed a tune. Water swirled around the statue, lifting it from his hands and placing it in the garden. It also pulled his black hair away from his face, sweeping it neatly behind him. What are you doing here? Fiora asked. Shouldn't you be preparing for the ceremony tonight? I don't have a singing role. Those are reserved for members of the royal family. The scorn in his tone said she shouldn't have a singing role either. That he would do a much better job if given the chance. Fiora had no doubt that was true, but family was important to Merfolk. They stayed loyal to each other. She had taken that for granted when she accepted her father's invitation to join him on land. She had assumed that human families felt the same loyalty and her half-sisters would welcome her as one of them. That had been a mistake. You're a captain of the guards. 
surely you have some sort of responsibility tonight. Yes. Guarding. But for now I'm rebuilding gardens. Some of us know our roles well enough that we don't need to practice. Fiora scowled at the merman. Leander met her gaze with anger in his hazel eyes. Go practice somewhere else, Fiora. I have work to do. I could help. I doubt it. Something rumbled through the ocean floor. The statues trembled as if caught in an earthquake, but it almost sounded like laughter. It stopped as suddenly as it began. Fiora looked at Leander, but the merman didn't seem concerned. I have work to do, and you're interfering, Fiora. Leander sang. His voice crescendoed through the ocean, and an enormous whirlpool built in the center of the garden. It swept sand off the statues and pushed Fiora away. She tumbled through the water, catching glimpses of statues and her reflection in the mirrors. Leander kept singing. Kept pushing her away until she was so far out in the open water that she no longer saw him, the gardens, or the mermaid city. And she was covered in sand. Fiora brushed herself off. Her hair was hopelessly tangled from the whirlpool. Maybe she should borrow a fork from Madame Isla to brush it out. Something golden on the ocean floor caught her eye. Leander's song had swept more than Fiora away. Maybe she'd be lucky and find a comb. She swam to the ocean floor and pulled the gold object out of the sand. It was a ball. Fiora turned it over in her hands. What was this thing for? Gold seemed an impractical material for a toy. She tossed it up in the water as if she were a child playing catch with herself. The ball drifted slowly up then sank towards the ocean floor. It slipped out of Fiora's hands when she tried to catch it. She followed it down, trying and failing to grip the smooth metal. Finally, she swam under the golden ball and caught it against her chest. The ocean around her dissolved in a flash of white as a strange vision overcame her senses. Fiora saw herself floating in the ocean. Her hair was hopelessly tangled from the whirlpool. She held a golden ball and tossed it into the air. The vision faded, and Fiora blinked at the shifting light of the open ocean. What had just happened? She had experienced mermaid magic many times and human magic a few times in Kel, but this was something else entirely. Was it meant to be some kind of mirror? Why had it showed her a vision of herself? Fiora bit her lip and stared at the distorted reflection of her face in the gold sphere. It was dangerous to play with magic you didn't understand. She should probably put the ball back on the ocean floor and let the sand swallow it. Instead, she pulled it to her chest. The ocean once again flashed white. It is so nice to meet you all. My name is Kathleen. Fiora hovered in midair, slowing bobbing up and down. Kathleen floated in a bay near the shore, talking to humans who sat on land. Humans that Fiora recognized. Princess Karina of Santel and King Gustav of Montaigne sat on a blanket. They looked like they were having a romantic picnic by the sea. Fiora wouldn't have pictured them as a couple. But then again, Karina had been her nemesis at many princess tests and Gustav had ruined her chances with Prince Alaric by providing testimony to support Lena. Both had sabotaged her in Ionia. Maybe they were a good match after all. A frog sat near Karina on the picnic blanket. Some kind of pet? Be careful, the frog said. 
Don't get too close. A talking frog? Or a transformed human? If what she was seeing was real, Fiora needed to search the library and find the transformation charms Madame Isla had mentioned. She tried to get a closer look at the frog, but the vision pulled her attention back to the mermaid. Kathleen smiled and winked. I mean you no harm, she said. I want to help you. By stealing ships? Karina asked. Those incidents have been beyond my control, Kathleen said. The kraken are restless. Far more so than usual. The frog hopped onto Karina's shoulder and whispered something. Karina nodded. You claim the kraken aren't under your control, but the one that attacked last night was summoned. Kathleen sighed. Yes, Leander is brash sometimes. He called the kraken to help him escape, and I apologize that it also took your ship. Fiora's consciousness returned to the ocean in a flash of white. She blinked, disoriented by the longer vision. Was it real? Or had the ball shown her some kind of daydream? If it wasn't real, it was oddly specific. And if it was real, that meant Leander and Kathleen had interacted directly with humans in their quest to retrieve the Kraken Heart. With Karina, Gustav, and a talking frog. Fiora tried to sort it out, but the vision remained a tangle. She knew that Kathleen, Leander, and Althea had retrieved the Kraken Heart from Santel, but she didn't know how. She had assumed they had stolen the gem without being discovered. In the end, their method for obtaining the gem didn't matter. They had succeeded, and the Kraken were sleeping again. What mattered to Fiora was the frog. He was proof that the transformation magic Madame Isla had mentioned was possible. Fiora's ring was useless, but that didn't matter if there were other ways to transform. She looked at the dull pearl and sighed. Did Karina and Gustav realize how lucky they were to be fully human? To sit and have a picnic on the grass as if it were the most natural thing in the world? To not worry about being banished to the ocean if they failed to measure up? Fiora blinked back tears. Crying underwater was a strange experience. Your tears simply floated away. Maybe real mermaids didn't cry. Maybe that was another part of her human heritage. Fiora had felt hollow and out of place since she returned to the ocean. Of course, she had often felt the same way when she was on land. When you were part of two worlds, neither felt like home. She brushed her tears into the ocean and swam up to the surface. It didn't take long. She must be close to shore. Yes, she was. A strip of land was just visible on the horizon. Blast it all, Leander had pushed her farther than she thought. It would take a long time to swim back to the city. Fiora turned to the open ocean, then turned back to look at the land. The dedication ceremony would take place at sundown, and the sun was still high in the sky. She had time. And she suddenly wanted very much to see humans. Fiora dove under the water and swam towards the shore. She hummed as she went, creating a current that helped her swim faster. Soon the surface of the water was dotted with the shadows of ships. She must be near a city with a bustling port. Fiora didn't dare look above the surface with so many ships around. She swam along the coast until she found a quiet cove. When she peeked into the air, she found a castle looming above her. That must be the royal castle of Montaigne. Fiora had never visited that kingdom. 
As a human, she had only traveled away from Kel for princess tests, and Montaigne hadn't hosted one in her lifetime. She studied the castle with a critical eye. There wasn't much to criticize. Montaigne had a reputation for making beautiful things, and it seemed that reputation was well-deserved. The castle emerged from the hillside in an elegant wave of marble spires and balconies. The silvery stone sparkled against the mountains and pine forest behind it. It was surrounded by human gardens filled with flowers and shrubs. From what Fiora could see, pathways led from the castle through the gardens to the ocean. Sandy beaches stretched on either side of the estate. They were empty, unlike the bustling port. Maybe they were part of the castle grounds. Instead of making her feel better, seeing the castle made her even more homesick for land. Fiora ducked under the water and glared at the golden ball. This was all its fault. The vision of human life had reminded her of all that she had lost. She lifted it towards her chest, then shook her head and pulled it away. Whatever else it could show her, she didn't want to see. It was simply a painful reminder that she was trapped under the ocean. As the dull pearl was a constant reminder that she had failed. Even her father found her useless as a human. So she would have to make the best of her life as a mermaid. Fiora resurfaced and sang softly, practicing her part for the ceremony and letting magic seep into her voice until waves swirled around her. She reviewed the more difficult passages in the song a few times, checking to make sure she was breathing in the right spots and perfectly in tune. She was. Perhaps whatever had gone wrong earlier wasn't her fault after all. Fiora knew her notes. She had control of her magic. She would perform tonight as she had performed at countless princess tests. Hopefully with better results. She should swim back. The ceremony began at sundown, and she needed time to get ready. Fiora studied the castle a moment longer, drinking in the sights of the human world before she submerged. A man stood on a balcony looking down at the water. He was too far away for her to see more than his silhouette, which hopefully meant he was too far above the water to see her. The last thing she needed was to break mermaid law by interacting with a human. Fiora dove beneath the waves and swam away from the shore. When she was a safe distance from land, she sang with her full voice. She pushed as much magic as she could into the melody, creating a current in the water to carry her back to the summer city. Chapter 6 Gustav walked through the castle to his office, taking the long way around to avoid running into anyone who might want his input on anything. He wanted to deal with the problem of his birthday gala before he got swept up in the rest of his duties for the day. He just needed a few minutes of quiet to regroup and strategize before he faced his grandmother. But when he flung open his office door, the room was already occupied. Gustav paused in the doorway, wondering how Marquis Corbo had managed to get there before him. What is that? The Marquis stood next to a dressmaker's mannequin wrapped in billowing, white fabric. Gustav blinked in confusion, and Marquis Corbo shook his head in a patronizing way. This is a wedding dress, your majesty. Placed on a dressmaker's form to show it off to best advantage. Yes, but why is it in my study? It is for your bride, of course. Did you sleep well? You're a little slow this morning. Gustav took a deep breath and let it out in a soft sigh. As a matter of fact, he hadn't slept well. Not that anyone actually cared.
Marquis Corbeau, I have told you this more times than I can count. I am not getting married until we find my father. Not to mention we are in a time of crisis as we rebuild the harbor. In spite of your impressive efforts, I have not found a bride in the short time I have been back in Montaigne, and I have no intention of doing so. The Marquis shrugged. You'll never find a bride with that attitude, Your Majesty. We had Princess Karina's marriage contract practically signed, and you managed to mangle that. I'm taking precautions to make sure it doesn't happen again. And how will a wedding dress help? You don't even know that this will fit the woman I choose. It might be out of fashion by then. Marquis Corbo smirked. When you do find the right woman, there will be no need to delay to plan the wedding. I'm arranging all the details now to make sure we are ready. The designers assure me this classic silhouette will stand the test of time and flatter any figure. They've made the gown in a number of sizes just to be safe, and the fit can be altered in a matter of minutes. Minutes? Marquis Corbo was ever an optimist and strategist. In different circumstances, it was admirable. Right now, it was beyond annoying. Was this his revenge for Gustav's refusing to marry Karina? Or perhaps punishment for the way he kept going behind the Marquis's back to help merchants? If not, that certainly hadn't helped matters. Gustav studied the dress. It was elegant, but that wasn't a surprise. Montaigne was known for its good taste in fashion and everything else. The white satin was trimmed with pearl beads and embroidered patterns of seashells. The full skirt and trim waist would flatter most figures. Marquis Corbeau had even set white shoes decorated with matching pearls beside the dress. Doubtless those were available in a variety of sizes as well. Your Majesty must marry sometime, Marquis Corbeau said. Why not sooner rather than later? Think how nice it will be to be fully king. To be able to make decisions without the approval of the council. The budget meeting I scheduled this afternoon to discuss Princess Colette's hospitality would be completely unnecessary. This afternoon? Yes, this was definitely revenge. Last at all. Gustav was so frustrated that he considered the Marquis's proposal for a moment. Given how often he disagreed with the council, it would be nice to have the power to decide matters without their oversight. All he had to do was find a bride. Gustav tried to imagine the woman who would wear the gown. When he did marry, Marquis Corbo was stubborn enough to insist that his bride wear this exact dress. Gustav's mind remained stubbornly blank whenever he thought of his wedding. He tried to replace the wooden mannequin's features with those of a living, breathing woman, but nothing stuck. Even in his imagination, his future bride remained far out of reach. She was something to consider when he found his father and figured out how to balance his duties as king with the attention his love would deserve. Right now, Gustav couldn't even find the time to breathe. A breeze from the open window teased the fabric, making it dance around the mannequin. Music floated on the wind, and Gustav walked out on his balcony to look for the source of the song. Someone was singing. A woman. He searched the shoreline but couldn't see anyone. Her voice seemed to come from the ocean itself. It will move beautifully at your first dance, Marquis Corbo said. Won't that be nice? You and your bride twirling around the dance floor. Your arm wrapped around her waist. Her eyes sparkling as she smiles up at you, 
silently asking for a kiss. The singing grew and filled Gustav's senses. For a moment, he could see it. The daydream swept him away, and he pictured himself hand in hand with a woman on the beach. He still didn't know what she looked like, but he knew her voice. She sang as they danced, providing the music since they were alone. The singing stopped, and Gustav came to his senses. He glared at Marquis Corbo. You're trying to tempt me into marriage with talk of kisses. That's low even for you. I will do whatever is necessary to ensure the future of Montaigne. I don't doubt that. The men stared at each other, neither willing to look away and admit defeat. The Marquis looked decidedly unashamed for resorting to underhanded tactics. Gustav, are you in there? Colette danced through the door. Her smile faded when she saw Marquis Corbo. Forgive me, I didn't realize you were in council. I just wanted to let you know that I decided to give the merchant a room for the night. He had nowhere else to go. Is that all right? Marquis Corbo gave Gustav a knowing look before turning to Colette. I'm sure that's perfectly fine, Princess. I'll see you in the budget meeting this afternoon, King Gustav. Fine. Please take this dress with you when you go, Marquis. I think not, Your Majesty. The council and I recently decided to redecorate the castle, and we are starting with your office. That's completely within our power until you marry and assume the full responsibilities of the kingship. The dress stays. Good day, Your Majesty. Colette bit back a smile as the Marquis bowed and left the room. Gustav raised an eyebrow at her. Sorry, but he must be desperate if he's resorting to fashion and decorating to persuade you to marry. I appreciate his efforts to secure the future of Montaigne, but this is getting ridiculous. Gustav grimaced and looked around his study. The room was made from marble and trimmed with blue tile. Several large windows provided a view of the sea and Montaigne's harbor. Apart from the floor-to-ceiling bookshelves lined with ancient texts, the room had few decorations. The swirled marble was decorative enough. It wouldn't be nearly as nice when Marquis Corbo was finished with it. Gustav realized he had wrapped his arm around the mannequin's waist at some point and hastily let go. Last Corbo, the fabric was soft. It would be fun to dance with a woman wearing it. That's a nice dress, Colette said. Does this mean you've chosen a bride? No. You'll be stuck with your responsibilities as lady of the house a while longer. Grandmother takes care of most of those. Yes, I heard she's taken an interest in my birthday gala. With a vengeance, and she's recruited Marquis Corbo to help. I expect the guest list will consist largely of eligible young ladies. Gustav groaned, and Colette's eyes twinkled. If you're truly desperate to escape, you could tell everyone you're heartbroken over your failed engagement to Princess Karina and pay a state visit to Ionia. You might be able to win her away from Prince Stefan if you're extra charming. I think it's best if I stay away from Karina and Stefan for the time being. For many reasons. Most of them being his sanity. Gustav appreciated Karina's cleverness and Stefan's. Well. He didn't quite have the words to describe Stefan. But their recent adventure in Santel would make him think twice before visiting the pair in Ionia. Even if that visit would get him out of his birthday gala. Colette grinned. 
I'm joking, of course. I never thought you and Karina would be a good match. But Grandmother and the Marquis won't give up, you know. Everyone in this castle is determined to see you married. Even you. Colette tried to look innocent. Of course not, Gustav. You'll find the right lady in your own time. Last it all, Colette. You have someone in mind, don't you? She shrugged. Maybe. Was I that obvious? Let's just say you're no Karina. Fine, I invited someone to your gala that I think you'll like. Maybe you'll do better with a normal girl than whatever crazy political match Marquis Corbo dreams up next. Gustav realized he was playing with the pearls on the wedding gown sleeve and stepped away from it. Blasted dress. You know I can't think about marriage, Colette. Not while father is out there. He stared out the window where the ocean stretched to the sky. The song had faded, leaving only the sound of wind and waves. His sister stood beside him and leaned her head on his shoulder. But you could, Gustav. You can move forward with your life without giving up on father. No, I can't. Gustav, what if he isn't out there? What if the ring is wrong? Don't tell me you refuse to believe in magic now. After the princess test and the kraken? Of course I believe in magic, but you have been looking for almost a year. Father wouldn't want you to waste your life obsessing over magic we don't fully understand. This charm finds people, Colette. It only points light towards people who are still living. You shouldn't pin all your hopes on a magical light. But he should pin them on a single woman. Gustav raised his hand and stared at the signet ring his father had given him before he disappeared. It had an enchanted ruby set and a gold band marked with the royal crest of Montaigne. Dwarf made. The ruby gleamed in the sunlight. Gustav raised the ring to his lips and whispered to the enchanted gem. Find King Francois. A red light shot out from the ruby and pointed towards the sea. Gustav pulled a compass from his pocket and checked the direction. It hadn't changed since the last time he looked. It hadn't changed in months. That should have meant his father was in the same place, but their searches had led to nothing. Maybe the mermaids have seen him, Gustav said. I should have asked them about it when I had the chance. Maybe they turned him into a frog like Prince Stefan. I hope not. I don't think father would do well as a frog. Someone knocked on the door. Gustav opened it and did his best not to frown at the servant, who bowed low before delivering his message. Begging your pardon, your majesty, but there is an urgent matter of state that requires your attention. Marquis Corbo requests your presence in the throne room immediately. Gustav sighed and hurried away to the throne room. Apparently his few moments of peace and quiet would have to wait. Chapter 7 Zoe was still practicing in the library when Fiora returned. The young mermaid stared so intently at the seashell carved with her notes for the ceremony song that she didn't notice Fiora swim in. Fiora circled the library as she looked for a place to hide the golden ball. The room was round like a sphere and lined with shells of every shape, color, and size imaginable. Light filtered in through artistically carved gaps in the structure and gleamed off the shells creating a magical effect that Fiora had always loved. It had been a shock the first time she visited a human library. All those straight lines filled with paper books felt so static and artificial.
and why did the books all look the same when they contained different information? Underwater libraries were organic, like something grown rather than made. The merfolk carved stories and songs onto shells in curving lines of text that followed the shell shape rather than trying to make everything uniform. Fiora found a large clam shell carved with a record of Madame Isla's observations of the sea wolf. That should be a safe enough hiding place. Nobody but Madame Isla was interested in the work habits of a merchant ship, and Madame Isla would be too busy sorting through the Kraken wreckage to read this for a while. Fiora hid the golden ball under the shell and pushed it into the sand to make sure it stayed. She wished she could carry the ball with her, but she had nowhere to store it. None of this would be necessary if mermaids had pockets. Or clothes. She sighed, sending a stream of bubbles floating towards the top of the library. They gleamed like jewels in the light and caught Zoe's attention. The young mermaid turned away from her shell and waved to Fiora. How did your practice go? I've reviewed my notes so many times I feel like I wrote them. Zoe hummed, creating a current that carried the shell she had been studying back to a crevice near the top of the room. I feel ready for tonight. At least, as ready as she would ever be. Zoe beamed. It is exciting, isn't it? Our first time performing with our royal sisters. If Fiora had been the same age as Zoe, she had no doubt this evening would have been the highlight of her young life. As it was, this concert was simply something she had to do. Another step on the journey to prove she belonged under the sea. The vision of King Gustav and Karina at the picnic flashed through Fiora's memory. Maybe she wouldn't have to prove she belonged with Merfolk if she could return to the humans. Zoe, have you ever studied transformation magic? Zoe's eyes darted up to a section of the library that held large conch shells. Fiora followed her cousin's gaze and mentally marked the spot. I learned a few of the songs, but I've never performed them. Why do you ask? Fiora shrugged, trying to sound casual. I overheard someone mention turning a human into a frog. Zoe giggled. Kathleen did that to Prince Stefan while she was trying to retrieve the Kraken heart. Althea was going to kill him otherwise. Fiora wasn't surprised. Althea could be rather intense and didn't like anyone standing in her way. Not to mention that Prince Stefan was so annoying Fiora had been tempted to kill him herself a few times. How exactly do the transformations work? Fiora asked. Do you sing them as you would any other enchantment? Zoe's face fell. You want to leave again? Fiora, you just got back. No, I don't want to leave. Fiora lied. I'm just curious about the magic. I was thinking about how my ring works and wondering if there are ways to accomplish the same thing through songs. She twisted her ring around her finger, frowning at the useless, dull pearl. Zoe glanced at the ring, then back at the conch shells. I don't think it's the same. Your ring relies on human affection, doesn't it? Yes. It uses the love of a human man to transform the mermaid wearing it into a human. How exactly it did that, Fiora couldn't say. As far as she knew, her ring was the only one of its kind. Maybe because human emotions were fickle, and it was safer to rely on the magic in your voice than someone's feelings. Althea made the ring, Fiora said. Do you think she made other transformation enchantments? Zoe shook her head. 
Althea doesn't do that sort of magic anymore, but Madame Isla uses it to help her studies sometimes. She wrote the song Leander used to transform into a human when they were looking for the Kraken heart. Leander transformed into a human? Zoe looked up to the conch shells again and frowned, as if realizing she had said too much. We should go, Fiora. We need to get ready for the ceremony. Fiora resisted the urge to look at the space that held the transformation songs and followed Zoe out of the library instead. She would return later to see if the shells held any useful information. Although if everything went well tonight, she might not need it. If she could prove that she belonged here, maybe she wouldn't feel so eager to leave. The entire city bustled with activity as everyone prepared for the ceremony. Merfolk swam loops around each other, and a strange chorus of unrelated yet harmonious songs floated through the water. Fiora looked for Leander, hoping to find an opportunity to ask about the enchantment that had made him human, but whatever he was doing, he was doing it somewhere else. You're late, Althea said as they swam into the castle. She was already prepared for the ceremony. Her hair was filled with decorative shells and rocks tied and braided into the strands. She wore eight oysters clipped onto her tail, marking her status as a member of the royal family. Fiora's plans to ask Althea about the transformation magic withered and died when she saw her aunt's expression. That conversation would have to wait until Althea was in a better mood. Which meant it would be waiting a very long time. Eat something first, girls, Kathleen said. She gestured to a flat rock covered with what passed for food in the underwater world. Zoe smiled and darted over to it. Fiora gagged. Since they were underwater, mermaids could not cook as humans did. There was no fire. No spices. Instead, they mashed ingredients together into thick blobs the consistency of mud. The blobs on the rock were in an appetizing gray-brown color and had crab legs sticking out of them. Zoe picked one up and munched it with obvious enjoyment. Tiny clouds of black floated away from her mouth as she crunched a crab leg. Squid ink, Althea said with a scowl. I told Chef to make something that wouldn't make a mess, and he sends this. But they're delicious. Zoe said. Don't talk with your mouth full, Kathleen said. Fiora, are you going to eat, or should I do your hair now? I already ate. Fiora would rather go hungry than eat anything on that rock. The squid ink floated through the water in dark lines. Althea was right. It was a mess. Before she had experienced life as a human, Fiora had found the merfolk food tolerable. Now it was unbearable. Just another reminder of the life she had fought for and lost. Kathleen swam around Fiora and tied shells into her hair. Althea hummed a tune to gather all the squid ink Zoe had spread into the water into a single dark cloud. She pushed it out an opening in the wall then joined her sister in helping Fiora prepare for the ceremony. On land, wearing this many ornaments in her hair would have weighed it down and given Fiora a headache. But underwater, everything simply floated. She would notice a little more drag when she swam, but nothing else. Beautiful, Kathleen said. The blue shells look lovely with your red hair. Fiora rolled her eyes. Her hair color had caused her nothing but trouble. She looks like Nyssa, Althea said softly. Fiora wasn't sure which surprised her more, 
the emotion in her aunt's voice or the fact that she had mentioned Fiora's mother. She's Nissa's daughter, Kathleen said gently. A royal sister. I've always thought she looks like her. Fiora stared up at her aunts. She had only ever heard that she looked like her father, but perhaps that was because she had his hair. Althea studied Fiora from head to tail, then nodded. You do look like Nissa. I don't know why I haven't seen it before. And you act like her too, Kathleen said. She was always getting into trouble. And we'd get her out of it. Like when you made the ring? Fiora couldn't help asking. Althea scowled, but not as deeply as Fiora had thought she might. Have we never told you the story? Fiora shook her head, causing the shells tied in her hair to bob in the water. You never talk about her at all. She was pushing her luck, but she had never seen the royal sister so receptive to talking about her mother. Maybe she could get new information while they were feeling sentimental. Althea sighed. You've probably guessed most of it. Nyssa visited land and fell in love with your father. She was never happy in the water after that, so we made the ring for her. We? I helped, Kathleen said. It took months and every bit of magic we had. And it uses the love of a human man to transform a mermaid into a human. Althea nodded. Fiora ran her thumb over the pearl's lifeless surface. She had tried not to think too hard about it since she returned to the ocean, but the evidence was too overwhelming to ignore any longer. If the ring had lost its magic, then her father no longer loved her. Fiora hated that her eyes filled with tears when she admitted that to herself. It shouldn't hurt so badly. Why should one person's opinion matter so much? Because she had given up her entire world to live with her father. Because she had dedicated her life to marrying well and making an alliance for Kel when he asked. Because, no matter how hard she tried, she had still lost him in the end. To the stepmother who never approved and the stepsister who never failed. Elspeth? Fiora gritted her teeth as she remembered her father's words. Fiora had been sent away to give Elspeth a better chance. A hand settled on her shoulder, and Fiora flinched. Kathleen gave her a sad smile. That's enough reminiscing, I think. Let's put the oysters on Fiora's tail so we can start Zoe's hair. Perhaps this was why the mermaids never wanted to talk about their younger sister. Kathleen looked less cheerful than usual, and Althea looked capable of murder. She pulled eight oysters out of a large clamshell basket and swam down to Fiora's tail fin. Kathleen hummed a tune to open the shell, and Althea clipped it onto her tail. Ouch! Fiora jerked her tail away as the pain shot through her fin. The emotion in her voice created a small whirlpool that spiraled through the water. It knocked the blobs of food off the rock and sent them flying across the room. Where they crashed into Queen Galarus. Dark clouds of squid ink spread slowly through the water, leaving blotches of black on the queen's long, white hair. Everyone in the room stared at Fiora. She stared back in horror, watching helplessly as the squid ink spread. The other mermaids regained their composure and hummed to create magical currents in the water. They pushed the squid ink away and pulled crab legs out of the queen's hair. The dark spots remained. Apparently squid ink was an effective hair dye. Queen Galarus didn't say anything. She simply looked at Fiora for a moment, then shifted her gaze to Althea and Kathleen, 
sending them a clear message. Fix this. The queen backed out of the room and swam away. As soon as she was gone, the room sprang into motion. What was that? Althea asked. Why did you scream? It hurts. Fiora said, pulling at the shell. It's ripping my fin. Fiora, the oysters are harmless. Kathleen grabbed Fiora's tail and clipped the rest of the shells on in quick succession. Tears filled Fiora's eyes. She clamped her mouth shut, not daring to speak for fear that she would create currents strong enough to wreck the room. When they had finished, she floated to a dark corner of the room and tried to focus on anything but the pain shooting through her tail. At least it was a distraction from the ache in her heart. The mermaids ignored her while they cleaned the room and finished getting ready. Fiora flexed her fin, trying to stretch away the pain, but nothing helped. Zoe swam over when her hair was finished and oysters had been clipped to her tail. I know it pinches, but you get used to it. She smiled sympathetically, and Fiora glared. Pinch? That was the understatement of the century. Zoe's eyes widened when she realized Fiora was in genuine distress, and she sang a soft song. It was one Fiora recognized from her childhood. A song of healing and comfort. The sharp pain in her tail eased into a dull throbbing. She relaxed a little. Thank you, Zoe. That's what sisters are for. The mermaid beamed, making Fiora think she should probably be nice to her more often. The youngster meant well. Getting dressed up is always uncomfortable, Zoe said. Do humans wear decorations? Fiora nodded, not quite sure how to explain earrings and corsets and high-heeled shoes and the various other human clothing meant for formal events. The heels had been uncomfortable, but nothing like this. It's time, Althea announced. Is everyone ready? She glared at Fiora and Zoe as she said it. Both mermaids nodded. We're ready, Althea, Zoe said. Then let's begin. Everyone follow me. The rest of the mermaids followed Althea and the royal sisters in a single file line. They sang a solemn tune and moved slowly since this was a formal procession. Thank goodness for that. The oysters pulled at Fiora's fin every time she moved her tail. She watched the other mermaids for signs of discomfort, but none of them seemed to be in pain. Maybe Fiora's fin hurt more because she was half-human. Because the fish part of her was a little less fishy than everyone else. Lucky her. They reached the site of the ceremony, and Fiora did her best to push the pain out of her head. She needed to focus. If she wanted to find her place as a mermaid, then she needed to sing perfectly. 